Well, thank you, ladies, for singing and sharing that song with us. They were very uh, nervous because they didn't get a chance to practice it this morning, but they did a great job. So thank you for blessing us with that song. Uh, we are still working the kinks out of our new program we have, so uh, we are going to continue doing the sermon slides up there. Got some feedback last week from people who appreciated it. Got some people who watched it, our live stream, uh, because the sermon slides are on our live stream as well, and they appreciated having those on our live stream. So we're probably going to keep going and see what we can do. Uh, maybe get some way for me to get back up on the platform while still having the slides. We're still talking about that. If you'd like to turn your Bibles first to Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40. If you followed my sermon since January, you've probably noticed, uh, maybe subconsciously, maybe not, maybe you haven't noticed at all, but I've come back to a theme, a theme multiple times as we've been working on 1 Corinthians, and that theme is identity. Identity. Who are we? As people, who are we? How do we describe ourselves? Do we describe ourselves as Christians? That's nice. Do we describe ourselves as Americans? Do we describe ourselves as Nebraskans? Who are we? Are we products of our belief system? Are we products of of our parents? Are we products of our grandparents? Are we just merely someone who takes a last name and we pushes it on to the next generation so they can keep the name alive? Who are we? What is our identity? It's a question that a lot of people have asked themselves over the past years. Recently in America, our, this discussion of identity has gotten a little more muddled as people have taken the, the concept of sexuality and placed it into our identity. So now not only are we products of our faith or our nationality or where we live or our parents and all that, but we're also, we define ourselves based on our sexual relationships and our sexual desires and all these things. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and throughout the Corinthians, he pushes this concept of identity back to them. Who are you, Corinthians? Who are you, Corinthians? And if you, Corinthians, know who you are, you will therefore live a certain way. But if you don't know who you are, Corinthians, you're just going to be this piece of dust floating on the wind, going here and there, here and there. The answer of who we are affects everything in life. We're studying 1 Corinthians 7 this month, so the question of who we are affects all sorts of things, including sex, divorce, and our romantic relationships, or lack thereof of romantic relationships. Today, as you can see from this slide, we're talking about singleness. But the question of identity, in, that, in, in the process of talking about singleness, we're going to be talking about identity, we're going to be talking about marriage, and a lot in between. So, Will you read with me the passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40, if you have that up there with you. Now about the virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but to give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. 
From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, and those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, and those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if, it not engrossed, if, it, if they were not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord." If anyone is worried that he may not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the spirit of the Lord. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you so much that you are the God of everyone, no matter who we are, no matter the state of our relationships, no matter if we have achieved who we want to be or not. You've declared yourself our God and our creator. And you've sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die that we might know you and have a personal relationship with you that will last for all of eternity. Thank you for that amazing truth. Thank you that we don't have to do anything to earn this, but all we have to do is turn to you in faith and say, yes, I believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. Lord, thank you for that amazing gift. Today, as we talk about something that's not necessarily talked much about in churches, I ask that you'd give us wisdom to understand and how to live as a Christian, even in this area, in dealing with those around us and in our own lives. As I'm up here, Father, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. So, We have a choice in life. Some people say that there are two big decisions in life. The first is when we choose to follow Jesus. That is one of the the biggest decisions you can make. You make the choice, yes, I will believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. It is a life-altering, soul-changing decision that lasts for all of eternity. Biggest choice you can make with your life. There's some people who go through life that never make that choice. They're missing out the biggest choice. The second biggest choice, people say, is when we choose the person we get married to. Because that is a, a, following Jesus is an eternal decision. Marrying someone is a lifelong decision. And we either like make a good decision and we're happy for the rest of our life or make a horrible decision and we're miserable for the rest of our life. Okay? So, some people say two biggest decisions. Choosing Jesus and choosing your spouse. But I say that biblically, the second major decision is even more basic. The decision is, are we going to get married, or are we not going to get married? That's the big decision. Choosing who we get married to is secondary to this one. 
Are we going to get married or are we not get married? Unfortunately, society over the years has waffled between what is right and wrong in this, whether marriage is right or not marriage is right. In the early church, there was a group of churches um, where they taught it was a sin to get married. This was about 100, 120 AD to about 200 AD, group of churches that said, no, Jesus is coming soon. Therefore, let's not get entangled in fleshly relationships and let us devote ourselves to serving the Lord. So they said it is a sin to get married. Well, Jesus didn't come. And those churches and those cults died out, uh, literally, because there wasn't anyone coming back to them. So, group that said, don't get married. The other extreme is happening right now, actually, in some churches. It is considered the spiritual option to get married. There are some churches that actually teach that in order to, to earn part of your salvation, you have to get married. And if you don't, you're not as holy as you could be, because marriage is the great sanctifier. There are some churches that will actually, the way they teach and preach, they will treat the singles in their church almost as second-class Christians because they always teach toward those who are married and they forget about those who aren't. And there are some circles, some churches, that when they see those lifelong single people, they start whispering and saying, oh, do you think that person, maybe they're single because maybe they're homosexual." Maybe they're gay, and that's why they're not married. But should that be? No. Earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am. He is single at this time that he's writing. He says, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, the other has that. All these gifts that he says, in Paul's eyes, both marriage and singleness are viable options for a Christian. They're each a gift that God gives. He sees, he is single, and he sees the benefit of the single lifestyle. He says that God gives gifts of marriage and singleness, both of them to be used for God's glory. Both come with blessings, Both come with hardships. So as we start this, as we talk about the choice of marriage, we're going to talk about the blessings and the hardships of both marriage and singleness. Let's talk about marriage, the choice of marriage. There are many people, most people here in this building have made the choice of marriage. But why? When we had the choice, we're going to get married or not, why? Most of the time, when we talk to people, and I sit down and say, okay, why do you want to get married? They give me all sorts of different reasons why they want to get married, and most of them have to do with the blessings of marriage. Not anyone looks me in the eye and says, I want to get married because it's going to be hard. (laughs) Anyone? No. So there are blessings to marriage. There are blessings. Uh, Several weeks ago, the first Sunday in September, we talked about one of the blessings of marriage. We send all the kids downstairs, and this is kind of what it looked like when we sent them downstairs. Sorry, Sharon and Karen, I couldn't resist. <laughs> but we talked about the, one of the blessings of marriage, the physical relationship where we get crazy kids from. That is a blessing from God that God has given that married people get to enjoy. But not only is the physical relationship a blessing, but there is uh, the blessing of 
Teamwork, teamwork. Having a spouse who is a believer and gets to join us in the unity of purpose is great. Uh, Case in point, I think about the college I graduated from, Pensacola Christian College. It wasn't a perfect institution. There's a lot of things I didn't agree with. And if you know about the institution, we can talk about it and all those sorts of things. But it was founded by a couple who didn't have any kids. And they were united on their purpose of ministering to kids together. So when they were younger, they started a Sunday school class in the community because there wasn't one there. And those, those little kids grew up and they said, well, let's start an elementary school together. So they did. Then they started a high school together. So they did. So then they started a college together. And they did. And then they started a seminary together and a master's program, a doctoral program, all because these two people married, were united in purpose together to accomplish something for the glory of Jesus Christ. Having someone you are married to that you can be a team with is a blessing. We can talk about encouragement, encouragement. Warren Wearsby tells the story of a Scottish preacher who uh, preached something from his pulpit that was biblical, very biblical, but the community didn't like it. So every day in the newspaper, there was these nasty articles against this Scottish preacher, condemning him, talking about all sorts of things personally about him that were not true, talking about all things biblically about him that were not true. He went through a horrible time of persecution in his community. And one of his friends led him out to coffee for one day, and they talked, and his friend looked at the Scottish preacher and said, how are you able to survive this? And the Scottish preacher looked at his friend, struck her in the eyes, and he says, because I am happy at home. I am happy at home. He's able to go back home and have encouragement from his family. It's truly, God has given blessings in marriage of the physical relationship, of teamwork, of encouragement. We could continue talking about all sorts of blessings, but we won't. Um, If you're married right now and you haven't experienced some of those blessings, but you're stuck in some of the hardships we're going to talk about, and you want to work through that, please let me know. I would love to work with you and help you know the blessings that God has designed marriage to be that you may not have experienced. God designed marriage to be a blessing, not a curse, despite what some jokes say. But, as we say, while there are blessings to marriage, there's also hardships. Can I get a witness? That was very, I expected some, like, all right, thank you. (laughs) The hardships, though, in marriage run deeper than just relational difficulties. We know about relational difficulties in marriage, but the hardships are, are, are run even more deeper than that. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 28 to 31. Paul writes, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Yeah. And my remote just lost signal. There we go. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present, present form is passing away. What is Paul saying? First, Paul is not saying that anyone who is married should abandon their spouse. Even though it kind of looks, he says, if you are married, live as if you are not. That is not what he's talking about. Too many husbands, too many wives abandon their spouses nowadays anyway. And too many of them live in their homes as if they were divorced. 
not living their relationship out as God has called them to, even though they were not divorced, they're living in the same house, they're acting like they're divorced. It's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is saying that there are those who are married who face worse hardship than those who are single. There are some times that those who are married face worse hardship than those who are single. What are those times that Paul talks about? Paul, uh, Jesus says to his disciples in John sixteen thirty three. John 16, 33, I have told you these things that, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have come, overcome this world. He says, in this world you will have trouble. What is this trouble? Well, Paul is talking about persecution here. For the committed Christian, this world will bring trouble. It will bring persecution. In Paul's day, they experienced this trouble more than we experience now, But there are places around the world that experience this trouble more than we experience here, like how Paul was experiencing it. In those places, and someday maybe here in America, maybe in our lifetimes, there will be a time coming where those who are living, who are Christians, must realize that being married and having kids brings more heartache during persecution. It does. Because during persecution, not are we only overwhelmed with our own pain, but we're overwhelmed with the pain that our wife or our husband and our kids are experiencing because of our choices. Because we will each have to stand up and say, no, I will follow Jesus no matter what, and we will look over and see our spouse and our kids going through pain because we stood up and said, this is the path and I will not deviate from it. There's hardship to those who are married during persecution. Paul, when he was thrown in prison multiple times, he never had to worry what was happening to his spouse and his kids because he was single. Hardship. Not only is there hardship due to persecution, but there's hardship due to conflicted priorities. Conflicted priorities. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 to 35. Paul writes, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right, in a right way in an undevoted devotion to the Lord. A married person is continually faced with this question. Every day that they live, what does it mean to follow God right now? Because when we're married and we're truly seeking to follow God, we are pulled in two separate directions so many times. Because we look at a choice that's in front of us and we say, oh, to follow God, I should do this. But then we say, but if I do this, I'm going to be pulled away from my spouse. And, and aren't I supposed to please my spouse because that's what God has called me to do? I'm a husband. First Peter 3, 7, I'm supposed to live with my wife in an understanding way. I'm to love her as Christ loved the church. And that means spending time with her that she needs, time that I could be spent serving the Lord. So many times, if we're being honest, I would love to spend more time with someone who needs help. I would love to add a few more changes to my sermon. I would love to spend more time in my studies or on my PowerPoints, all these sorts of things I would love to spend time on, but I can't because I have to go home and spend time with my wife and my kids. 
because that's what God has called me to. Now, I'm not saying that I want to go home. Don't think that. No, I love going home. I love spending time with my wife. I love spending time with my kids. Don't go and quote people and say, hey, Pastor Peter just bashed time with his family. (laughs) But there is division. There is division within me every single day. Those who are not in full-time ministry, if, if you're truly focused on serving the Lord and truly focused on pleasing your spouse, you feel that pull too because you, you still want to volunteer and serve in your church. You still want to volunteer and serve in the community. You still want to do all those sorts of things. You want to help other people. You want to make a difference, but you have to stop and go home and be with your families because Paul just said your aim should be to please your spouse. There's a pull. There's a hardship because of conflicted priorities. We could go on. There's a whole bunch of other hardships we could talk about, but these are the two that Paul mentions here. Hardship because of persecution, hardship because of conflicted priorities. So we have a choice. We have a choice. One choice is marriage, but the other choice is staying single. And yes, this is a choice that we can willingly make. Too many people take this route grudgingly, they, they say, oh, I have to because of my position. No guy has ever asked me out. No girl has ever said yes. I guess I'll just remain single for the rest of my life. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, some people choose to be single because they're calling in life. Some priests that are out there, they're single. But it's a choice that can be made willingly, not just because it's forced on us. I had a professor, Dr. Kuro Villa. He was a preaching professor down in Dallas Theological Seminary, and he was single. And he, he pr- talked about this multiple times. That he was single by choice, lifelong celibate. He said if, if God ever changed his mind and he would get married, he'd willingly get married. But he said he wanted to spend his time impacting as many students as possible. And he was able to do that because he didn't have a wife, he didn't have kids. Morning till night, he was spent with students, teaching them what it meant to study the word of God and what it meant to translate that study into a sermon. There are blessings to singleness. What are some of the blessings? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. Paul says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, 34. Uh, An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. The unmarried person can focus on serving the Lord. There's an undivided devotion. They don't have to go home to anyone. They don't have to be afraid how their actions will hurt someone else that is under their care. They can be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. Okay, I've already opened about my, my life. I'll keep doing it. Um, I'm going to talk about my past. I don't want you to think because I'm talking about my past that I don't, like, I already done this caveat, but I must say, I am happily married. Everyone okay with that? I am happily married. All right. I believe that God has guided me in marriage, into my marriage. I believe I'm glorifying him in my marriage, all these sorts of things. All right. Looking back, I was able to do so much more when I was single than when I'm married after marriage, and especially after kids. It's like, oh my goodness. When I was a single person, I worked 40 hours a week. While I was working 40 hours a week, I was taking full-time classes. While I was working 40 hours a week taking full-time classes, I was also volunteering in multiple organizations, including my church. I was going from 6 in the morning to 11 at night, nonstop, 
I was able to do so much for the Lord. But immediately when I stood at the altar and said, I do, the amount of stuff I was able to do, cut in thirds. Those days are behind me, and I'm happy with my life. You understand, I'm happy with my life. I'm not saying this because I'm not happy with my life. I'm happy with my life. But there is joy in giving undevoted, undivided devotion to the Lord. Those who are single can spend all day, every day, serving the Lord in their family, serving the Lord in their community. There are many singles who don't, and they're miserable. But those who can spend all day, every day, serving the Lord in their family and their community, that is a blessing. There's also hardship that comes with singleness. Singleness is a gift that God gives, but sin mars everything. It does. Sin mars everything. And so sin does mar the blessing of singleness as well. There's hardships that come, and one of them is loneliness. There's loneliness in being single, and I acknowledge that. Paul compensated for the loneliness in his life by always traveling with someone. He had Barnabas, Later, he had Silas, he had Titus and Timothy, he had Luke. He had all these people that he traveled with so that he was never alone because there's loneliness and there, is, there are uh, temptations in the single life. You can hear almost the loneliness in Paul's voice when he says in 2 Timothy 1.15, the last letter that he ever wrote he says to Timothy, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including these two people whose names I will not pronounce. There's loneliness. Later in the book, after he says that everyone has deserted me, he, said, he pleads with Timothy, come. Come as soon as you can. Because he was lonely. There is a struggle in the single life to be fully convinced that Christ is enough. That Christ will provide everything that is needed and that his provided relationship that he offers is deeper than anything on earth. And it is. But in our sinfulness, sometimes we can't grasp it. We can't understand it. Those who have never been married experience this loneliness to a point. Those who have been married and have lost their spouse experience this loneliness to a greater point because they feel the empty bed next to them. They hear the empty table. There's the absence of that teammate, and every day they're reminded of that, that hole that's there, the loneliness. And sometimes that loneliness is greater than they think that they can bear. So there is hardship to singleness. In the midst of all the blessings, there is hardship. We could keep going on the blessings, we could keep going on the hardships, but I won't. The choice that we have is marriage or singleness. Neither one is better than the other, biblically. Neither one is exalted over the other, biblically. It all depends on how God is leading. So, like I said, most people here are married. There are some here who are single, either all their life or right now. And the question is, what do you do with that choice? If someone is faced with this choice, marriage or single, what advice do we give on how to live in a godly way in making that decision? According to the text, Paul says, well, the advice that we give is look at the world. What is the condition of the world that we are living in? Would it be wise to be married and have children where we are in the condition of this world? Very few people in the United States right now will be living in a condition where persecution will come up 
and the situation is such that it would may not be good to be married and have kids because of the hardships that will come. But the question should still be asked, will marriage to me, with where I am at in this world, bring undue hardship on my future spouse? Will it? And if it will bring undue hardship, maybe singleness is the best option. Sometimes the answer to that question is, no, I should remain single. Sometimes the answer to that question is, not right now. There, there's no, nothing wrong with waiting to get married so that the state of this world or the state of my life will change. There's nothing wrong with waiting, but sometimes it's very wrong to rush into the marriage. More sin happens with rushing into marriage sometimes than waiting. The waiting that we must do, it might be because of persecution. The waiting we must do might be because of emotional hardship that's going on. The waiting we must do might, might be because of finances. There was a young lady that I knew that was very lonely, and she met a husband. She was not satisfied in the singleness that God had given her, and she was not seeking out the blessings of it. Uh, And she met a young guy who, quote-unquote, liked her. Their financial situation was not the best. I advised them not to get married, and they did. And a few weeks later, uh, they were screaming at each other in their car because the pressures of their life was too great for them. They hadn't counted the cost. One, one pastor said this, better to live in single loneliness than in married cussedness. Single loneliness than married cussedness. Tied to the question of look at the world is look at your life. Where is God leading you? So this is a blast from the past. This is Maggie and I on one of our first dates. It's kind of blurry, uh, but even then she looked better than me. We're at the Texas State Fair. In our hands is deep-fried red velvet cupcakes with cream cheese frosting. They were divine. As I ate them, I thought I was in heaven, and the more I ate, I figured I'd probably go to heaven. (laughs) Definitely recommend. But as we were getting to know each other, trying to see each other's life, I asked Maggie in several different ways where God was leading her. What were her gifts? What were her passions? Where did she see herself going? Because I didn't, I wanted to know where God was leading her. I wanted to know the path. And I didn't want to get in the way of that path. If God was leading her somewhere where it would not be in line where God was leading me, I was not going to be the one to veer her off the calling that God had on her life. We need to look at her life. And then, then once I figured out where she was going, I made very clear that I wanted to be a pastor in rural, small town, nowhere, America. And if she married me, she would experience hardship, lack of finances, and an immense amount of faith. And did she still want to follow me in this? Thankfully, she said yes. I wanted her to know what she was getting herself into. Because not only should we look at the world, but we have to look at life. Not there. We're not there yet, Mr. Wesley. Stay back in the computer. Because married couples, as we said, have divided interests. There's the passion we want to serve the Lord, and there's the passion that we need to serve our spouse. The divided interest that's there. If we can both agree on serving the Lord means this, that divided interest isn't as great. Because in serving our spouse, we're serving the Lord. In serving the Lord, we're serving our spouse because we are united on this front of this is the way we're going. And if more couples actually had that talk, 
there'd be more joy in marriage because they can be united in serving the Lord together. Too few people actually take the time for this exercise, including great men of the past. Now, Mr. Wesley, you can come. This is John Wesley, founder of Methodism, lived then, 1703 to 1791. He traveled across Great Britain and Europe preaching the gospel. Thousands of people came to know him, to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. He was away from his wife more than he was with her. He was never unfaithful to his wife. No, never did. But he spent many hours in his carriage going from one speaking engagement to the other with other ladies in the carriage talking about things of God. He spent more time talking with other ladies than he did with his own spouse. And one thing led to another. After years of loneliness, Wesley's wife left him because he was more focused on serving the Lord than on her. George Whitfield, leader of the First Great Awakening, preached in both England and America. Again, he led thousands to faith in Jesus, to Jesus Christ. And he followed the same path as John Wesley. Close friends, actually, go figure. His wife never left him, but she had a bunch of diaries talking about how she was very lonely because he'd be gone for months at a time and up to a year away from his wife. William Carey had a great missionary career. He was called the father of modern missions. He traveled to India and places around there, uh, and he dragged his wife everywhere he went because he didn't want to be apart from her, but he brought a lot of hardship on her. In fact, because of the hardship and all the places and things that she was required to do, she went mentally insane because of his lifestyle. I can't help think that some of this heartache that these men brought on their wives could have been avoided if these men had simply decided not to get married in the first place and said, hey, if I'm going to be devoted to the Lord, how about I just be devoted to the Lord? There's others, on the other side, there's these two people, John Stott and Lottie Moon, lived at two different time periods, as you can tell from the photographs. But both of them said, you know, I want to serve the Lord in my missionary context, and I want to be devoted to it, so I will willingly remain single for all my life. And they did. They willingly did it for their entire life so they could focus on their own ministries. What am I saying? Well, I'm saying, yes, should we get married? Should we not? I can't say. But I am saying we should look at the world, we should look at our life, and then make a choice based upon what we see, whether we follow God in singleness, whether we follow God in marriage. Look at the world, look at life, make a choice. Warren Wiersbe uh, recommends asking these questions of everyone thinking about getting married. The question is, what is my gift from God? Where is he leading me? Am I marrying a believer is the second one. So what's my gift of God? Am I wanting to marry a believer? Are the circumstances such that the marriage is right right now? What's looking at the world? Is the circumstances, circumstances, that word, such that marriage is right? How will marriage affect my service for Christ? If God has called me in this way, is marriage going to detract from that or not? And am I prepared to enter into this union for life? Five questions. And if all these answers say marriage, then get married. God's blessing on you to life. If they point to singleness, stay single. God's blessing on you. Do it. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 7, 36 to 38. 
If anyone is worried that he may not be acting honorably toward the virgin he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry does better. Both the married and the single are using their gifts, the gifts that God has given them, to glorify God. Neither should feel bad about their life. Neither should be pestered by anyone in their church about the choice they've made in their life. Matchmakers, I will talk to you. What is the point of this all? We've had the choice. We've seen the advice. What is the point of it all? Paul says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We're to glorify God in the choices of our life. So, if we are married, we do it for the glory of God. What are some of the reasons that people get married? Anyone throw out reasons people get married? Have children. Yes. Anyone else? What else? Share life. Yeah. Anyone else throw out? Money. Yes. Some people do get married for money. We'll talk later. Anyone else? To not be lonely. Yes. Anyone else? For love, hopefully. Okay. Anyone else want to say anything? Convenience? Yeah. Uh huh. U.S. News and World Report says people should get married for these reasons. We should get married for financial security. There you go. That was number one, Nancy. Financial security. To get married to help the economy, to help their neighborhoods, to get better health insurance, to give children a stable home, to reduce stress, <laughs> to provide more opportunities for kids, on and on and on and on they list. All of which are nice, but they do not cut it. We get married to glorify God. That's the bottom line. That's our goal in life, to, get married, we, to glorify God. So we get married to glorify God. So my challenge for you, if you are married, you've never sat down with your spouse to do a purpose statement for your marriage, I encourage you to do it. All my premarital counseling couples have to do this. They have to create a purpose statement for their marriage. So this week, if you are married, sit down and do it. Make sure in that purpose statement you have something in there about glorifying God because that is your reason to do it, but flesh that out. What does that mean for you uniquely together to glorify God and then provide specific ways underneath that purpose statement of how you can do it together and then put that purpose statement somewhere in your home where you can see it and then live that purpose statement out. You say, but you don't know my spouse. Actually, I do. So so do it. Uh, And if you come together and you say, no, this isn't happening, it's not working, we're actually getting into more arguments doing this, then we'll go into my office, my couch is really comfortable. You can take a nap, I will slap your spouse, wake you up, we can work on it together. And this will truthfully, if your marriage is good, it will make your marriage that much better. And if your marriage is bad, it will make your marriage better. It will, to come together united on a purpose to glorify God. That being said, I must put a side note in the sermon. I need to talk about the last two verses that uh, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 7, 39 to 40. Paul says, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the spirit of God. 
Paul encourages widows to remain single so they can so- focus on serving the Lord. We've talked about that, the undivided lo- stuff. But he says if they remarry, do it with joy, but make sure that they're marrying someone who is a believer. And Paul's mindset, and I believe this is across the board biblically, but Paul does not fathom any Christian marrying someone who is not a Christian. He doesn't. The goal of marriage is to glorify God together. And if we marry someone who is not a believer, we cannot do that. We can't. So if you are married to an unbeliever, I pray for you every day. I pray that your spouse will come to know Christ and that you can have this purpose together. So making the mission statement might not be good for you right now if you're married to a believer, but you can make a mission statement yourself and say, myself in my marriage to my spouse, this is my purpose of glorifying God with him, and these are the ways that I will do it and share it with someone else. If you're thinking about being married someday or you're a young kid and you're like, someday I hope to be married and my spouse is going to have all these 25 amazing characteristics. First, make sure number one is that he or she is a Christian so you can unite together on glorifying God. We are married to glorify God. We are single to glorify God. If you're a single, praise God, stay single, but do it to glorify God if that's the calling that God has had in your life. Do you know what happens if you are single for any other reason than glorifying God. Depression, isolation, bitterness. The extreme is suicide. It happens. But if the extreme doesn't come, one day out of exasperation, you might just look out the window and you see the first single person walk by that has a pulse. And all of a sudden you say, that's the one. And you run out the door, you grab them, and you say, you will marry me today. might be a little extreme. And then you kick yourself for the rest of your life. Singles, as I said, have an amazing opportunity to glorify God. So you, singles, just as I told the married couples, you make a purpose statement for your life to remind yourself why you are where you are, why God has placed you in this part of your life. No matter your age, whether you're 13 year olds or above, if you're under 13, I give you a pass. But if you're above 13, do this. So yes, teens who are in this room, do this because you're not married yet. Write a purpose statement for your life. Why God has placed you where you are right now in this condition. Put somewhere in there, glorify God because that's what it is. And then specifics of how you can do that. Post it somewhere you can see it, plus share it with someone who you trust. Because whether we're married or whether we're single, the minute we resolve to glorify God with our life, we resolve to do it specifically, hardship will come. Pain will come. Everything will be thrown at us to try to get us away from following what God has called us to do. That's why we need people to pray for us. So when we're married, we have our spouse. If you're single, reach out to someone else. If you're married to a non-Christian, reach out to someone else. They will hold you accountable and they'll pray that you will live this purpose out in your life. If we're single for any other reason than glorifying God, if we get married for any other reason than glorifying God, pain will come in our life. It will happen. Because when we do not live for the glory of God, we will live for everything else, and everything else brings pain. Now, if you look at your life and you realize you've made choices based upon everything else than glorifying God, and you look at your marriage situation, or you look at your singleness, and you say, I've completely ruined my life. You have not completely ruined your life. Because Jesus died to make beauty out of our brokenness. 
He died to bring healing from our pain. He died to bring forgiveness for our sin. So we can choose to refocus our life back on Christ and say, yes, I know what I did. It it was not good, but I will draw a line in the sand. And from this point on, I will live for the glory of God. And I'll purposefully do it. Not like a small speck of dust that is thrown this way and that way on the wind. I will purposely live for the glory of God. And when we do that, we might see things in our life actually change for the better, whether we're single or not. Might change radically for the better. They may not. Life might get even more hard. But either way, we will experience the spiritual blessings of Christ when we seek to follow him. Now I promise to do this. Matchmakers, you're like, but they're single! And you have that little itch within you that they, oh, come on! Yes, God has gifted you to have fun making matches. I do not have this gift. I'm not a matchmaker. There's some people that say, oh, but you got us together. I did not. And I'll put my foot down. If you come up and say you did, I will remind you I did not. However, in your meddling, do not make the assumption that someone will naturally be happier if they are married or that they will not be able to function as a single in life because those may not be true. So matchmakers first, walk up to the someone that you have just that itch that you, oh, you want to match them up with someone, ask them first their purpose in life and where relationships fit in that purpose. And if when you walk up to them and ask them that and they get their de- that deer in the headlights look of, what in the world are you talking about? Talk to them about purpose statements in life. Step them through how to make one. Say, hey, make sure you put something in there about glorifying God because Pastor Peter told us to. And have specifics in there on how they can live that way and then set them off to do it and check with them in two weeks, make sure they've done it. After they've done it, then you can ask them what's your purpose statement of life, how do relationships fit in. You've asked them, then you encourage them. And you say, great, that's awesome. I believe that you can serve God that way, even though in the back of your mind it's screaming at you, no, you can't. Encourage them in living for God how God has called them to live. And then after you've asked them, You've encouraged them, and when they allow you to, you can meddle in their life. As long as you're pushing them to marry someone who is a believer. Our identity is those who follow Jesus Christ. We should seek to glorify him in all areas of life. Singleness, marriage, every area in life. Let's make the decision wisely. Not because of emotion, not because of anything else but seeking to glorify God, let's make the decision where to marry or not wisely. And let us encourage others to make that decision with soberness, with Christ as the focus. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are our God, that you are the one who calls us your own and you lay a path for us to follow. Lord, I ask that you would help us to follow that path with braveness, looking to you as the author and perfecter of our faith and seeking to pull others alongside us in that path. May we not stoop to living our life as culture tells us to or stoop to encourage others to live their life as culture tells them to, but may we always point people to you, even in this small area of the choice we make Lord, teach us your way and guide us in your truth. Thanks, Father. Amen.